Easter is uh, something worth celebrating, we think. And uh, as you've just heard from Adrian, we've got four meetings coming up. Today's the first, a plan worth celebrating. Monday, Thursday, the death, the, the one that slipped in, the sacrifice on Friday morning, Sunday a day, and the following Sunday a life. And uh, this morning, it's a plan worth celebrating. That's what we're going to be looking at together this morning. And uh, as part of my preparation for this morning's message, I thought a good thing to start off with would probably be asking, what is a good plan anyway? Uh, what defines a good plan? And I thought if I looked up on the internet what the answer to that question might be, I might find some humorous anecdotes with uh, which to share with you this morning. So I did that and didn't find any, so that's why I started with a funny story, just to, to make it funny in the first place. What I did find, though, interestingly enough, was seven tips from a guy called Tim Berry as to something that makes a good plan. And I just thought from an educational point of view, if uh, nothing else at Oasis Church, we're here to draw you into the Word of God, of course, but we want to help you in life in general too, that I'd share those seven tips with you. So if you are planning anything that's coming up soon, you know how to do a good plan. So here they come. Here's number one, Tim Berry. His, uh, his top ten tips for what makes a good plan. The first one is this. Whatever you're planning must fit the need which I think is a sensible one. There's no point planning something that nobody wants to happen. That's a complete and utter waste of time. So I think his, his top one works. Second, is your plan realistic? Can it actually be implemented? No point planning something that's impossible. You will be planning to fail if you do that. So I think that's a sensible one as well. And number three, is the plan specific? Can you plan the detail with specific deadlines, dates, budgets, forecasts, deliverables? And this is all about the detail in the plan. There's no point having a plan that's just headlines, because otherwise that's just a vision or a dream or a hope. You've got to have detail in the plan, and you've got to be able to deliver on that detail in the plan. So I think Tim Berry gets a tick at that point. Does your plan clearly identify responsibilities for the implementation of it? Do people who are involved in the plan know what they're supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it? Good point, I thought. And is the plan clearly communicated to everybody who's in it? So you may have something that's responsible, you are responsible for in the plan, but do you know that it is your responsibility and do you know exactly what it is you're supposed to do? That was his fifth thing. Second, does the plan encourage buy-in? Is it the sort of plan that everybody thinks, yeah, I really want to be part of this? What am I on? Six. What did I say? Seven. Thanks for listening. I'm not listening to myself, clearly. A common trait in my life. <laughs> anyway, whatever number we're on, does it encourage buy-in? And that is, you know, is, is it a plan that enthuses you or gets you excited? Because there's a lot of plans that are around you think really boring. Don't want to be part of that plan. In fact, that plan is doomed to fail and I'm not putting myself alongside it whatsoever. And number seven, uh, is the plan kept alive by constant review and follow-up? I.e., is it something that, you, that stays alive because it's a plan that you're outworking and that you can deliver against and keep tweaking as you go along? Those are Tim Berry's seven tips for a, a good plan. Uh, some of you are taking pictures of that slide. Well done. This will help you in life. Uh, and if nothing else helps you in life this morning, Tim Berry has, not me. I then thought, if you're like me, I'm, I'm reasonably sceptical, to be honest. And I often thank God for the fact that I became a Christian when I was a slightly younger age and less sceptical, if I'm honest. Uh, but I'm slightly sceptical, so when somebody presents something to me, I then think, well, is that true? Do I really believe that's true or not? Can I measure what I've just been told against something to see whether it holds up or not? So I thought, why can't I think of a plan uh, across history against which we can measure Tim Berry's model? of seven tips for a good life, uh, for a good plan. And so I came up with one of the most outrageous plans in all history, which is Operation Overlord. Now, the older generation here probably know what that is, but that is the planning that went behind the Allied forces 
landing on mainland France in June 1944 and the outrageousness that was behind that in order to obviously pu push back the Nazi advance and ultimately bring an end to the Second World War. That plan was called Operation Overlord and uh, it, it was just a crazy plan. It took years, years of planning and uh, behind it there was a whole load of secrecy and intrigue and subterfuge, great word, where uh, things were invented to try and throw the Nazi German people off the scent that something was afoot. They knew that there potentially was going to be a landing somewhere in the, on the north coast of France, but they didn't know where it was going to be and when it was going to be. And part of the Allied forces' uh, intention was to throw them off the scent and make them think that there, were, there was going to be a landing up in Calais or a bit further up even in Norway, I think, uh, whilst all the time they were planning the landing in Normandy, in Dunkirk in Normandy. So uh, I thought, well, let's measure Tim Berry's seven points for a good plan against that and see whether he gets a tick or not. Uh, so... Uh, whatever you're planning must fit the need. Was there a need? Yes, there was. Mainland, German, uh, mainland Europe was uh, occupied by Nazi Germany. Definitely a need for something to change, so they planned something to change that. Second, is your plan realistic? Can it actually be implemented? This is a bit of a tentative one, because the plan was so ridiculous, it was so out there, it was so outrageous, that you could argue that it wasn't realistic, and there was a really strong chance that it wasn't going to be implemented. But the faith of the leaders who were involved in that plan, there's a picture of them on the slide behind. There they all are. General Dwight Eisenhower, Air Marshal Lee Mallory, Air Marshal Tedder, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, and Admiral Bertram Ramsey all had the faith to believe that they could deliver on the plan. Thumbs up to them. Tick for Tim Berry. Third, is the plan specific? Answer to that question, boy, there's a lot of specific stuff in this plan. Did you know this plan had uh, inflatable tanks involved, pretend boats? It had uh, false radio messages going backwards and forwards. It had uh, double agents. It had fake news stories. It had everything that makes an actually amazing movie work. This had a lot of detail in it. This plan definitely had detail. It could definitely be uh, tracked with that detail. Tick for Tim. Fourth... Can you identify specific uh, responsibilities for the implementation of the plan? This was an international effort. Loads of people knew what they had to do, and they did it really well. Was it communicated to everybody who was in the plan? Absolutely. Everybody knew the weight of what they were dealing with, and that anybody at any time could break the whole thing by it getting out there, and the whole thing would fall over. Did the, can, the, the plan encourage buy-in? Definitely. It was so fraught with risk that it was an attractive plan. Everybody wanted to be part of it rather than think that I'm not going to be part of that. And was the plan kept alive by constant review and follow-up? Absolutely. It had to be live all the way through to the last few minutes, literally, of that process. Because if the Germans had found out, even at the last minute, they could move all their reinforcements to Dunkirk in Normandy and the whole thing would have fallen flat. So Tim Berry, this morning, gets high accolade in my uh, estimation. He's got seven points for a good plan. It works against the most outrageous plan in history, and we can all uh, enjoy that little history lesson and business plan lesson today and go away and think, great, Gus, you've really helped me in my life this morning. The question, of course, is what on earth has that got to do with Easter and Easter Day and the Easter season that we're in and Jesus and all of us in this room right now? Well, it's got a little bit, and that is because that plan, Operation Overlord, as I've just tried to explain in, in broad brush terms, was and is known as one of the most outrageous plans in all history. It was right out there in terms of the fact that it was prone potentially to fail at any moment, and yet it succeeded in an historic moment of success. And of course, God has a plan for humankind that is way, 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 way beyond even that outrageous plan. 
His plan was not to save mainland Europe from a Nazi occupation. His plan is to save the whole of humankind across the whole of history from sin, wrongdoing, all the things that mess us up. That's the plan that he had. It was an out there plan. He knows that the human condition is one that needs us to be resolved, and yet he had a plan that was going to be produced and land and be something that throughout history people look at and think, that is an incredible plan. And that's why we wanted to, to recognize the plan on this first uh, of our Easter season meetings in order to say, hang on a minute, what, what is the plan? And why, does it, why is it necessary? And can we celebrate it? And the reason the plan's needed is, is, is simply because this, because the human condition carries an awful lot of flack. There's an awful lot of pain involved in being a human being. And I don't know what your story is in life. Obviously, there's some great moments and some joyful moments and some celebration moments and there's, you know, there's births and there's weddings and there's people going out and there's getting presents and there's birthdays and all that kind of stuff. But within the human condition are all those things that generally, at some point or other, really take us down. Being a human being is, is painful sometimes. We struggle with anger and frustration. There's guilt that we carry for wrong things that we've said, done, or thought of. There's angst. We carry that uneasiness in our hearts, and we don't sometimes even know why. There's agony for things that have happened to us or friends and family that we know and love. Violence that takes place, and we think, what's going on there? Sickness. We've just heard that prophetic encouragement that God wants to heal this morning. Brokenness. Things that have happened to us that break us in two. Insecurity. Do people love me, accept me as I am? Injustice. We get really cross when things happen that we don't think should happen. Relationship breakdown that really tear us apart. All those things are part of the human condition. And there is a result of the human condition. And God's plan is to take every one of those things and bring the exact opposite in play for every one of us always, all of the time. That's the amazing wonder of the plan that God has got in place. So rather than having pain, we've got all of these things. Comfort. Rather than anger, there's peace on offer. Rather than frustration, we've got well-being, guilt, forgiveness, angst, relief, agony, joy, violence, calm, sickness, there's healing, brokenness, there's wholeness, insecurity, security, injustice, justice, and relational breakdown, there's love. God is giving us the complete opposite of all the difficult conditions that we hold as human beings that he wants to deliver to every single person at every moment of their lives. And it's all through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who's part of the plan, he's a partner in the plan, and he was passionate about the plan. So that's who we're looking at this morning. We're looking at not Tim Berry and his seven points for a good plan, although that's pretty good. We're looking at the person and work of Jesus. But we're looking at it in a way as we're leading up to what we know is going to happen over the Easter season. How I decided to do this today was to take us through some of the stories in the book of Luke that Luke describes to build us up to the moment when Jesus comes in in that procession in what was known now as, as Palm Sunday. We're going to look at some of the stories because when Luke wrote his orderly account as described in, in Luke 1 verse 3, an account that was written with an agenda, with an intention, with uh, something in mind that he wanted to show, he writes these stories to show us something about what the kingdom of God might look like as Jesus comes in and what everybody thought it was going to look like and then shows us that there was something else in play that nobody else got at all. Now, we're on the other side of history, so we think we've got it today. But at the time when it was all happening, nobody knew it was going on. And as we'll see right towards the end, Luke interjects a section in his account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem that none of the other gospel writers interject. And it really gets you when you see it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to to tiptoe through the events leading up to Palm Sunday. You might need your Bibles if you've got them. If you haven't, I'll throw a few verses up as we go along the way so that you can see something of the pattern as we go through. 
And the, and the first thing that we're going to look at is uh, Luke 18. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 and ch Luke chapter 19. And the first part of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the journey to Palm Sunday is Luke chapter 18. And this is the story of the children being brought to Jesus. The children being brought to Jesus. And some of us will know this story. Basically, the children being brought to Jesus to sit on his lap, uh, have a little cuddle, uh, that kind of thing. And the disciples were batting the children away, saying, no, you can't go to Jesus. And Jesus said, no, don't bat them away. Let them come to me. And he says this in Luke 18, verse 16. He says, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And this is Luke reminding at the beginning of the events leading up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem that the kingdom of God must be received like a little child. When the kingdom of God comes and when it's revealed, you've got to receive it like a little child. You see, it's basically Luke saying, look, there, there is a plan in play here and you're going to think it's this plan, but actually it's going to end up being another plan. And the other plan's a hidden plan, but when you see the other plan, you've got to receive it like a child. And a child receives things in a way that, because they're teachable, and they're leadable, and they're humble, and they're willing, and they're enthusiastic. And these are words that Luke wants to get into our thinking about what the delivery of God's plan is going to end up looking like when it comes. So that's the first thing that Luke puts into our minds as he builds up to the Jerusalem entry. The very next story is the story of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. Now again, that story, many of us will know it. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, comes up to him and says, good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? He explains a bit of that and then he says, look, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question from the rich young ruler to Jesus. And Jesus basically hits him after a little bit of a play with, well, why don't you sell all your possessions and give them to the poor? Why don't you do that? And that caused the rich young ruler to, to be really sad because he had a lot of possessions and he wasn't sure whether he could do it or not. So he went away a sad man. And then Luke uh, records Jesus saying in uh, Luke 18, 24, Jesus saying this, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. As a result, those who heard this asked, well, who then can be saved? It sounds impossible. To which Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And this is this is Luke emphasizing what he's just said in the story about the children coming to Jesus. Because here we've got a rich man who is preoccupied, if you like, with adult preoccupations, which is generally wealth and money and possessions and building a good life. And this man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to lay all that down. Lay down your ad adult presuppositions about what you think a good life is and receive me like a child. Give your possessions away, lay it all down, receive humbly like a child. When the kingdom of God is revealed, that's how you've got to receive it. Like a child, laying down your adult presuppositions. So these are two stories that, 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 that Luke shares to give us a little hint about what God's real plan is. And then, which is really interesting, he shares a story about Jesus overtly sharing that plan with his disciples. So here's the real plan at this point. This is exactly the plan that Jesus has got in mind that we all know about today, that he knew about then, that he tried to communicate with his disciples at the time and had done throughout Luke already as well. And this is the moment where he shares with his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He will be mocked. He will be insulted. He will be spat on. He will be flocked. He will be killed. And on the third day, he will rise again from the dead. This is the very next story after those two stories. And this is the revelation of God's actual plan, as clear as crystal as you can possibly get it, to his disciples. And what do the disciples 
response to that in verse 34, here it is. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. The disciples didn't get the explicit, overt declaration of this plan. It wasn't something that they could comprehend. And if we were there in that moment, having had that plan shared with us as well, we wouldn't have got it either. We can't think, oh, why didn't they get it, stupid disciples? We wouldn't have got it either. The whole idea of this guy, Jesus, who was their leader for the last two or three years at least, with all the things that are surrounding him in terms of uh, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, massive, wonderful teaching, great prophetic leading, all that kind of thing, we wouldn't have thought that spitting and mocking and flogging and insulting and torture and death would be anywhere on the map in terms of what was happening. Luke puts it in to say, this is the real plan, everybody. And the disciples didn't get it. And he knew they didn't get it, which is why I wanted to say what it was, so that we can come with him on the story to what's going to come in Jerusalem in a two or three stories' time. So, very next story, what is it? You can see how Luke is trying to build it up. The very next story is blind Bartimaeus receiving his sight. Now, this is something that disciples and the followers of Jesus did get. This is something they did understand. This was more like what's around a real plan. This is, if you like, God being God as far as they were concerned. God doing the thing that God can do, which is a miracle. So blind Bartimaeus is brought to the feet of Jesus. He cries out says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's brought to the feet of Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, I'd love to see. Jesus says, I'm giving you the gift of healing. And it's interesting that, again, we've had that prophetic encouragement this morning that God wants to see breakthrough and healing. This could just be the story in and of itself that's a reminder to us that God can heal you this morning. If you've got something you need healing from, come and pray for you then. Let's see what God can do together. But this is, a, this is an important story because this is, is basically ramping up the excitement for us as lookers in, for, the, for those followers thinking, yeah, this is more what it's like. This is more what the kingdom of God looks like when the kingdom of God comes. He's ramping up saying miracles, God changing lives, massive change in life. And the story reveals Jesus, A, as king, because he's pronounced as the son of David by blind Bartimaeus. He's, he's, a, he's announced as a king who cares for his people because he's willing to stop and listen to the cry. He's pronounced as a king who's approachable because Jesus says, come to me, bring him to me, I'm going to do something for him. And he's pronounced as a king as love, who, who delivers the love through action by actually healing the guy who's in front of him at that moment. So this is... Getting Jesus back where he belongs, if you will. He suddenly becomes the people's champion. He's the one who's changed Bartimaeus' life. He's turned it upside down. He's given him sight, having been blind for so many years. And people think this is it. This is what the people's champion does. He's a good God. He's a loving father. He has an arm round. He's welcoming. He responds to response. And he's Jesus and he's king. And that's something of what the real plan is. Not this spitting, insulting, flogging, torturing, dying thing, that's, what's all that about? Don't get that. Move that out of the way. What we're looking for is a king who can come in, and if you're blind, can make you sick. And if, and if you're sick, can make you better. And if you can't walk, can make you walk. That's what we're looking for. That's the king that we thought you were. We'll have you, Jesus, as that. And this is the story that Luke puts in to remind us that that's what they thought Jesus was at that moment in time. It's a pivotal little story in the process. And then, just to kind of remind the readers and us today about what Luke's trying to, to, to do here, he introduces the story of Zacchaeus as well. Zacchaeus is the very next story after blind Bartimaeus. What is the story of Zacchaeus? Again, many of us will know it. Little Zacchaeus couldn't really see Jesus, climbed up a tree in order to see Jesus coming. 
good place to see Jesus. As he was watching Jesus come through, Jesus spotted him in the tree and said, come and have some food with me. And in that interaction with Jesus, Zacchaeus made a confession that he was going to follow Jesus for the rest of his days. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was hated. He was rich because he had a lot of money that he'd stolen off the people that he was, uh, that he was laundering money from. But he's a rich man who, in this story, turns to God. Now, we've already heard about a rich man who came to Jesus and didn't turn to God, but this rich man has seen Jesus for who he is and does turn to God. And it's a reminder that when you see Jesus as the people's champion, who can do anything, anywhere, anytime, and it's radically amazing, you're willing to give it all away because he's the one who can bring sight to the blind and uh, cause lame men to walk and cause sick people to become well and all that kind of thing. So this story is pivotal again because it shows you how it doesn't matter what you're like, if you see Jesus as the people's champion, you'll want to follow him. Even Zacchaeus wanted to follow him. And all of a sudden, we've got Jesus being attracted by young and old, children and adult, rich and poor, popular and unpopular. And that's how Luke has drawn us to this moment. Now, on the one hand, this doesn't sound that exciting for us because we're just hearing it. Perhaps you've never heard it like this before. This is, this is how Luke is trying to, to map it out. But for the people in, uh, in the stories, they're really excited. They're really excited about, about Jesus coming and about Jesus being uh, the king and about Jesus being one who can change lives. They're really excited about it, and all they're doing is looking for an opportunity to let Jesus do what Jesus does. He's the one who can do it. He, all he needs to do is step in, step up, step out, whatever he needs to do. We need to let Jesus do whatever he needs to do, look for an opportunity to proclaim him as the one that he needs to do whatever he needs to do, and when that happens, everything will change, and, it, and there's a real sense of urgency about everything that was going on. Luke 19.11, very next uh, story after the story of Zacchaeus, has the people saying this, they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. This kind of thing was happening because they were thinking that the kingdom of God's coming, 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 Jesus is our hero, Jesus is our leader, Jesus is our life changer. He's coming, he's here, he's the one. Let's forget all that other stuff about persecution and suffering and death. Don't get that. Ignore, ignore, ignore. Jesus, here he is. All we need to do is proclaim him as king. Give him the accolade that he deserves. And in that moment, everybody else will join in with us and there'll be a massive uprising and change will come. We'll overthrow the Roman Empire. New culture will come in. It'll be a kingdom of freedom and healing and joy and wonder. That's what we need to do. That's all we need to do, which is why when Jesus came into Jerusalem all those years ago on that horse, or donkey it was, but an horse was it, colt that he borrowed, when he came in, as it says in Luke 19, 35 to 38, they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, Olives, I can't even say Olives, on the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. This was a moment to proclaim Jesus as king, to proclaim Jesus as Lord, to proclaim him as the people's champion, because he was the people's champion. This is their moment. This is the moment to bring in the change that they thought they needed at that moment in time. They thought it was a good plan. It was their plan. It was a simple plan, but it was the wrong plan. It was the wrong plan. And it was the wrong plan because their plan was rife with division and separation. Division and separation had them and us as the headline of the plan. Their plan had Jesus coming in, causing this uprising, and overthrowing the Roman authority. So if you like, they became the ones that were, that, that, that were over the Romans and the, the Roman Empire. It was going to be a role reversal. 
There's going to be a new kingdom for them where everything was fine and dandy. And all of a sudden, everybody who was subject to this new kingdom would be captive to them. There was separation and division going on in that moment, in their thinking, even though Jesus was the one who they thought could bring it in. But God's not like that, is he? God's not a God who does separation and division. He's not, a, he's not a God that says them and us. He's got a completely different agenda. He's a God that says unification and togetherness and peace and wholeness and oneness, as we've been learning in Ephesians. He's a God that says, look, I don't want any plan that causes there to be a division between people of them and us situation. I need to bring in a plan, bringing God's kingdom that draws people together in love and wholeness and peace. Their plan was the wrong plan. God's plan was the completely opposite thing. The trouble was it was hidden to everybody in that moment, in that day. They didn't know what was going on. God did. And Luke interjects something of that intent when in Luke 19, 28, verse 44, he includes a bit in his gospel account of Jesus entering Jerusalem that none of the three other gospel writers include. And remember, Luke has written his orderly account. This is something he's thought about, he's structured, he's planned, he's talked to other witnesses. This is why I like the book of Luke. It's something you can trust because he's a doctor that's planned it and thought about it and thought, I need to put this in in order to get these messages to come through, which is why I've tried to share that with us today. And then he comes to this section that none of the other three gospel writers put in because he wants us to get something, as he writes it. And it says this, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over the city. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come when you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You did not recognize the time, the time of God's coming to you. And this is, this is ironic. It's black. It's dark almost. You've got the crowds waving their palms at Jesus. You've got the, the crowds saying, hallelujah, Hosanna is the son of David. You've got the crowds laying off their cloaks and, and putting them at the feet of Jesus. If you like, uh, an external expression of them laying down things that are adult to them. Being childlike in their enthusiasm of Jesus because they think they're seeing what the kingdom of God is going to bring in. And as they do that, in that euphoria, in the midst of all that excitement that they have, thinking this is it, the people's champions coming into town, everything's going to change. Jesus knows that even in their brokenness and in their desire for something different, what they're going to see is nothing at all of what they're about to see. And it breaks his heart because they want something so badly, which is just Jesus to overthrow everything and change it, but they don't know what the bigger picture is. And if only they saw Jesus for who he was, the saviour, the son of God, the one who is going to be spat at, the one who is going to be abused, the one who is going to be accused, the one who is going to be tortured, the one who is going to suffer, the one who is going to die on the cross. For the sin. If only they saw that, everything would be different. But they didn't, and they didn't want to see it. It was hidden from them. And even for us today, when the cross of Christ is presented to so many of us, it's hidden. We don't want to receive it. It's too much. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It doesn't fit. And yet, the cross of Christ has always been God's plan for humankind. That's the headline. That's always been the plan to celebrate. And the Apostle Paul, who obviously lived slightly after Jesus and that encounter of Jesus on the road to Damascus and uh, became a follower of Jesus from being someone who's entirely antagonistic towards him, he describes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 5, what the real plan of God was. 
This is someone who lived at the top, just after the time of Jesus and saw all of this happening. He said, look, the plan of Jesus is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This is the plan. If we ever want to know what the plan of God is, it's here nice and clear for us. That Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world. Come to that in a minute. That Jesus would rise again from the dead on the third day. And that Jesus would then appear to people who could verify that he had resurrected from the dead. People who were close to him, people that weren't close to him, up to 500 people. So that the birth and the propulsion of the Christian faith could be based on historical evidence that Jesus was alive. He dies on the cross for the sins of the world. He rises again from the dead. He's seen to be risen from the dead so that we know that he's alive and living and can change everybody's lives always forever. That is God's plan. And that is the outrageousness of God's plan because not everybody gets it. And it's not a very popular plan, if I'm honest, because the trouble is the plan of God revolves around us being childlike in how we receive it. And the childlike element of it is are we willing to accept that when God says that we fall short of his standards, his glory, that we do? Are we willing to accept that when God uses the sin word and says that his plan was for Jesus to come and die for the sins of the world, are we willing to accept that actually we do have that sin state that lives on us? Are we willing to accept that we do things and say things and think things that are wrong? Are we willing to accept that good living doesn't bring in a good kingdom? It's only God living that brings in God's kingdom. Are we willing to accept it? Are we willing to accept that each of us has got a skeleton in our cupboard or skeletons in our cupboard that should we open the door and it be revealed to mankind, womankind, friends, family, whatever, that would, that would, that would churn us up, that would rip us up? Are we willing to accept that? Now, some people are. And when they, when they realize that, when they realize that we fall short of God, when they realize that we've got the skeleton in the cupboard, when we realize that we say things and do things and think things that are, that are wrong, that cause so much damage, and then we get an inkling of how amazing, how holy, how wonderful, how loving God is, it causes us to think, man, I'm done in. And certainly that was me when I became a Christian. I was done in. When I saw how amazing God was and how wonderful he was and how loving he was and how sinful I was, I thought, oh, that's, I'm, I'm completely stuck. There's no way I can ever be in relationship with God. And a lot of people don't want to think like that. They want to think, no, good living gets it, gets it sorted. Kind living gets it, sort, gets it sorted. I can change the world just by being nice, which you might be able to do. But God says, look, you're broken as a human being. And there's something in your life, there's something in my life, that should the door of, the, uh, of our life be open, the skeletons will come tumbling out. God's plan is to say, I don't want skeletons for you, though. I don't want skeletons. I want robes of righteousness. I want cleanliness and holiness and holiness. I want peace for you. I want joy for you. I want laughter for you. And part of my plan is to have Jesus take the skeleton and, if you like, wear it and live it and imbibe it and be it. To take all the pain and suffering that we should have in our lives as a result of that sin and him take it instead. To die on the cross. There is no kingdom of God without the king of God dying on the cross. That's the headline of the plan. There is no kingdom of God without the king, who is God, dying on the cross. And people want to, want to do kingdom without, without God. They want to do good living without God living. They want to say it's okay to be a nice person, but they don't want Jesus at the centre that says, look, the cross is the be-all and end-all. And Easter time, it's that plan at the cross that we remember and that we celebrate. 
And it's, it is a somber thing on the one hand because Jesus was spat at. He was insulted. He was accused. He was tortured. He did suffer in a horrendous way one of the most horrific execution procedures that have ever been invented. That did happen. But he did it because he was part of God's plan. He's partners with God in the plan, passionate about the God, God's plan to deliver wholeness and peace and restoration for all of us. That's the plan that we celebrate. And to some extent, the Palm Sunday thing is a fake celebration because it wasn't, they were celebrating something that wasn't the real plan. And so we look in and they're all excited about something. And yeah, great, it's very, exciting, it's very good to be excited about Jesus. But they were, they were celebrating the wrong thing. We, however, today, the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus can celebrate that plan forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because we know what it is. And for those of us, of us that have accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we know that he does bring peace, that he does bring wholeness, that he does bring a sense of togetherness and unity with God and with one another. And that's the plan that we celebrate, and that's why we celebrate the Easter season as enthusiastically as we do. So my appeal this Easter, then, is simply this. If... The cross of Christ to you is a brand new concept this morning, then I'd encourage you to find out more about it. Keep trying to find out more about it. If you've never heard about the cross of Christ before and you haven't really grappled with this idea of falling short of God and being sinful and needing something to be sorted out, keep pursuing it. Keep working it out. Keep trying to find out the answers to the questions that you've, you've got. It says in the Bible that if we seek search after God, God will be found by us. If we keep knocking on the door of God's heart, he'll open it and say, look, come in. So keep looking, keep searching, and we're very much here to be part of that searching, seeking process with you. And I'd encourage you, if you can, to get to the next three or four meetings here in Oasis as we celebrate Easter, because it will become clearer and clearer as we do. If you're someone who has known about this for a while, you know about the cross of Christ, it's, if you like, old news to you, old news to me, ask yourself the question, does it still move you? Does it still thrill you? Does it excite you? Does it bring a smile to your face? Does it do anything for you? Is the cross of Christ something that's just become the Easter story and you think, I'd better get through Easter because that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. I'd better be excited next Sunday when we celebrate a day to be celebrated because that's what we do at Easter. I'd better clap my hands on Easter Sunday and bring a balloon and, do a, and look for an Easter egg because that's what we do on Easter Sunday. But actually, day-to-day -day living, you're a little bit dead inside. You've lost it and you know that you have. You know, I'm not saying that to condemn. I'm saying that because God sort of say, look, open your eyes again. This plan is not hidden from us anymore. We can see it in its full wonder and its glory. And the more you look in, the more exciting it becomes. I want to encourage you this morning. If you know that you have got a little bit dead in the Easter message, again, hang around. Keep searching. Keep looking. Come on Thursday. Bring a contribution on Thursday. Come next Sunday with a balloon. You don't have to bring a balloon. But come thinking, I'm just going to be here. I'm just going to enjoy celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Come the following Sunday when we'll hear stories about what Jesus has done in people's lives that show that he is alive and does make a difference in our world today. That will do you good if that is you. Finally then, back to Tim Berry, which probably some of you thought I might do right at the beginning. There must be a point of me sharing all that, uh, that business stuff with you about Tim Does Tim Berry's seven tips for a good plan how does that weigh up against god's plan for salvation here's the answer i don't really care <laughs> i don't really care it did cross my mind i thought well, that might be a clever thing to try and do but actually the more i thought about it all i know is this god's plan for salvation the death of christ the resurrection of christ the appearing of christ the sending of the holy spirit the ongoing growth of the christian faith across the years 
steeped in proven evidence that it's true. Because life after life after life after life after life, when they encounter Jesus, changes. From a life of darkness into a life of light. From a life of death into a life of life. That's what happens when someone meets Jesus. It's not all doom and gloom. It's, oh, I can't believe I haven't met you before. This is the best news ever. And that's happened ever since Jesus died and rose again from the dead. So we don't need to care. We don't need to measure it. What we need to say is, thank you, God. This is an amazing plan. And I see it in all of us here that know Jesus. I see it in a whole lot of people around the city that know Jesus. I see it across people in all my existence I've ever met that know Jesus. You see it in someone's face that they know Jesus, they love Jesus. Jesus has made a difference. Who cares whether anybody measures whether it's a good plan or not? It's God's plan, and therefore it's a plan worth celebrating. Shall we stand? Father, we just want to pause, having heard all that, and think again on the cross of Christ this morning. No, we have been already. Thank you that you've uh, drawn us into your presence through worship to a place of reminding us what it is to have you as Lord of our lives, Lord. <laughs> and we want that to be the case. And uh, Lord, this Easter season, starting with today, we want the cross of Christ to be right at the fore of our thinking we want to be a people that are genuinely impassioned about that plan, about what happened, about how we are rescued through it. And uh, God, just catch our attention over these next couple of weeks, Lord, that we wouldn't just go through another season, but that we'd meet you through the season, know you through the season. And I pray, Lord God, for those of us that might be here this morning who, who this is kind of news to, hadn't heard it before, had heard it before, but don't get it, just want to pray for these people, Lord, that you, you draw them to yourself. They, they, they'd know it for themselves, Lord. They'd know the saving grace that's available through your death and through your resurrection. And, and for the rest of us, Lord, that, that might say that we know it so well. Lord, we, we want to be set on fire by this news daily. I want to be like that, Lord God. I want to be changed and moved and compelled by it. I want to be a, someone that brings that good news to others. And I pray that for all of us, Lord God, that we won't just go through the motions this Easter time but they would be sharp, looking to encounter you, full of your spirit, in order to enjoy again the most outrageous plan in all of history, and you pulling it off. So we just want to give you praise and glory, and pray that your spirit comes, Lord. And as we pray for people now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come. I pray that you would demonstrate again what a good, good God you are. That you'd bring the healing, Lord God, that we want to see breakthrough in. That you'd bring restoration, Lord God, and peace, because that's what you keep doing over the ages through this amazing plan. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.